I'm sure many of you have heard the phrase, a picture is worth a thousand words. And this morning I want to modify that phrase just a little bit while still maintaining the same concept. A story is worth a thousand statements. What do I mean by that? When an author is trying to get a point across, often a story can be more impacting and memorable than just a list of statements. As we consider scripture broadly, I think we can all be grateful for how much story there is in scripture. What's more powerful for an author to have written God cares for his people or for the author to write the story of the fiery furnace and furnace and protects them? What's, what's more compelling to know that, to hear the statement, God is powerful over nature, or to read the account of Jesus falling asleep in the boat with the disciples as they traverse the Sea of Galilee, and the storm comes up, and the waves are raging, and these veteran fishermen are freaking out, and they're, they're desperate, and Jesus wakes up and says, peace be still, and everything is calm. As Luke continues to write this, the history of the early church and its first missionaries, he writes, he writes three short, within the body of Christ and within three short, within the body of Christ and within a daily in a daily walk with Jesus. And I'm grateful that Luke has done this through story. Again, he could have just taken the book of Acts and condensed it down into a list of principles and statements, but he hasn't. He's written story. And each of these three accounts is going to emphasize one aspect of missions that the church generally and missionaries specifically should be prepared to face. And each of them begins with a letter D. How convenient. Begins with a letter D. How convenient. Which is why the title of this sermon this morning is The Three D's for Missions. I'll be reading these three accounts beginning at the very end of chapter 15 and then moving on into the beginning of chapter 16 here in Acts. And as we read this, as we listen, consider how much more vivid a story makes a principle. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles in Numbers. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word to the province of Asia. 
When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to do so. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision at once to leave for Macedonia preach the gospel. This first account of the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, here's your first D. Likelihood of disagreement. Disagreement is that D. Missionaries are people, in case you weren't aware of that, and people are fallible, in case you weren't aware of that. Therefore, disagreements and conflicts are going to arise in missions. Disagreements and conflicts are going to arise within the church. And a godly approach to conflict has less to do with striving for an absence of conflict rather than how we deal with the conflict that is inevitable within any particular group of people. I know I've said many times that the Bible never presents anyone other than Jesus as perfect. He is the only biblical character whose flaws are not exposed. Now, I know I'm not talking about the great big lists of names where they're just named, okay? But any character that has a significant part of scripture written about her or him, we are going to see flaws. Even the heroes of the Bible are not revealed as perfect. So even though Paul and Barnabas are these godly men who are missionary pioneers of Christianity, they have flaws. And one of these flaws is exposed in their sharp disagreement over John Mark. I just want to say briefly, that word sharp there, how it's rendered in English, it comes from the Greek paroxysmos, which is where we get our English word paroxysm from. So it's just an illustration of how deep and how strong this disagreement was. This wasn't just a matter of opinion. Eh, I don't really agree with you. That's all right. This is a major conflict. I, the script doesn't say this, but I can imagine that there were raised voices. I can imagine that there was anger. Now, reminder quickly of who Mark is. He's a nephew of Barnabas, and he had been trapped. Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, but when they arrived in Perga for some reason, and again, Luke doesn't tell us what that reason was, but Mark leaves them, and he goes back to Jerusalem. So in this particular conflict between Barnabas and Paul, here's the bottom line question. This is what comes first, the individual or the ministry? Barnabas, as the son of encouragement, the exhorter, he's leaning toward the person, while Paul, the pioneer, is leaning toward ministry. Hey, this guy deserted us. He didn't see the mission through to the end. Forget it. He's a liability. He can't be trusted. Now, from this brief passage, I want to give you maybe three principles about disagreement within the body of Christ. The first is the importance of second chances. The importance of second chances. We need to be willing to give people a second chance to be faithful to the Lord. We need to be willing to give ourselves 
another chance to be faithful after we've failed. John Mark is a young man, and he did desert Paul and Barnabas. For some reason, he didn't see the mission through to the end, but he then co-minister. He mentions in his letters how valuable in ministry Mark has become. And at one point, he even in writing to Timothy, he says to Timothy, Timothy, send Mark to me. Send Mark to me because I need him. And he is helpful in my ministry. And beyond that, Mark eventually is going to write the earliest gospel, the first gospel that was written, the gospel of Mark. And it's difficult to imagine Mark becoming that kind of man had he not been given a second chance. Had he not been shown mercy and grace by Barnabas. So when a person has repented of faithlessness, when they have failed in ministry or perhaps in life in general, and they show a desire to return, we should be willing to extend them another opportunity. The second principle of conflict here is to keep the doors open. Keep the doors open. We don't know the details of the argument between Paul and Barnabas. We don't know exactly what was said. But we know it was severe enough that they parted ways and did not continue to minister together. But again, as we read Paul's epistles, Barnabas comes up a few more times. And specifically, Paul mentions Barnabas as a co-equal with him in apostleship. And that's important because it shows that while they did not continue to minister together, in their conflict, nothing was done or said that closed the door irreparably to relationship. And we need to be careful of that within the body of Christ as well. That when we come upon disagreements and they're coming, they will come, that we are careful that in our anger or in our frustration, we do not say something or we do not make a declaration that is going to lead to perpetual and never-ending division. Where we are able to say, I disagree with you, sister, I disagree with you, brother, on this point. It may be even a point that's important enough that means we cannot continue to minister together in this context but I'm not going to attack you in such a way that it's going to close the door for what God might want to do in the two of us together in the future. Because when we're in conflict, we can, right? We can be tempted to say things that will rupture a relationship, that will attack the other person, that will leave no opening for future reconciliation. And we must be very careful to never do this. We must keep the doors open because we don't know how God might choose to work in the future. Thirdly, as it relates to disagreement, God is sovereign. Even within human disagreements, even over human disagreements, even over conflict within his very own body, the church, God is sovereign. And it's his mission. It's not ours. So even though Paul and Barnabas disagree and part ways, God uses it for good, doesn't he? Where there was one missionary team, now there are two. Where there was perhaps one young believer who was going to be discipled in ministry, now there are at least two, Mark and Silas, who are being prepared for further ministry. So remember that God is sovereign over missions and ministers, and he can use even their failings for his glory and the growth of the kingdom. But, 
but this does not give us the freedom to do whatever we want to do, right? It doesn't give us the freedom to live in sin and say, God's sovereign, so he, he, he can use even my sin for his glory. That's, that, that's called cheap grace. It shows a profound misunderstanding of the sacrifice of, cross, of Christ on the cross. So the principle is, yes, he's sovereign, and we want to acknowledge in all things and in all ministry and in all relationships his sovereignty, even in conflict. But that does not mean that we are not responsible for doing everything we can to live at peace with all people, as Paul himself writes. Let's move on to the second D, this second account, short story, of Paul's meeting a young man named Timothy. So we're introduced to Timothy here. He's a young man of mixed heritage, whose mother was a Jewish believer in Jesus, but whose father was a Gentile Greek. Timothy is going to become an important figure in the new church, specifically as a pastoral elder or leader at the church in Ephesus. As you probably know, this is the Timothy to whom Paul wrote two letters that are part of the Bible. What we see in this introduction to Timothy is an emphasis on discipleship. That's your second D, an emphasis on discipleship as a primary aspect of missions. So once again, three brief points about discipleship. First of all, discipleship is most effective in the context of a relationship. If you want to just put one word for your notes, you can just put the word relationship. Yes, listening to sermons can be a part of discipleship. I hope that's true on Sunday mornings for all of us. Watching Online videos of Christian leaders teaching can contribute to our discipleship. But there's no substitute for the relationship, the personal relationship between discipler and the disciple. Or between the one being discipled and the disciple maker. Notice that this is what Paul does with Timothy. Specifically says Paul wants to take him along on the journey. I don't know if there's any more relational phrase than that. Traveling with someone, right? Because not only do you travel with them, but that implies that you're living with them, you're sleeping in the same place with them, you're eating the same meals, you're going to the same places, you're seeing to Timothy. He's training him, he's discipling him, he's preparing him to be a minister of the gospel. Throughout the last almost year and a half of this pandemic. I think all of us have seen both the blessing, but also the danger of technology as it relates to relationships. It has been a blessing in that it is a medium. It has been a means for us to continue to meet together at least to some extent, when we have, that's the blessing of YouTube. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, there's an, a, an accompanying danger. And that is that we get very used to the convenience of virtual relationships. And because we have used the word virtual 
as a synonym for digital, we have forgotten what virtual actually means. Virtual actually means not real. At its root, that's what the word virtual means. It's not real. It's a substitute. So we can be tempted, and I think we are tempted, to settle into a false comfort of virtual relationships. They're more convenient. Of course they're more convenient. Because I don't have to leave my home. I don't even have to leave my bed. I can just hold my phone up over my face and you know, see the other person, or they can see me. And I think that this is, is both, again, it's, it's a, a blessing, but it's a danger. Because in, in a city like Sao Paulo, we can use that tool for the sake of discipleship as well. It may be hard for a disciple maker and a disciple to get together physically every week in this city. So we can do it. We can meet virtually over uh, an online platform. But here's the danger when it becomes exclusively virtual. We are in, a da- we are in great danger of losing the relational, the true relational aspect of discipleship. And so a reminder that discipleship is crucial to missions and it, it works best in the context of personal relationship. Secondly, what is the purpose of discipleship? Is it Is the purpose of discipleship simply to grow believers into spiritual maturity? Is that the end goal? Or is there a further purpose? I think there's a further purpose. The goal of discipleship is to make disciples who make disciples. Think of it this way. You have a car. It's running very low on gas. So you go to the posto and you completar, you fill it up. Then you put the gas cap back on, you drive it home and you put it in the garage and say, I have a full tank. And then you walk 200 kilometers to go visit a friend. The reason you fill up the car is not just so you have a full tank of gas. It's so that you can use the car, so that the car can transport you. So in the same way as Paul is pouring into Timothy over the years that they travel together, he's not doing it just for the purpose of Timothy becoming mature in the Lord. Yes, that is part of the process, but he wants Timothy to become mature in the Lord. Why? So then Timothy will begin to pour into others. He will make disciples himself, which is exactly what happens. And if if you read the first and second epistles that Paul writes to Timothy, you're going to see Timothy maturing before your very eyes, and he's in a position of leadership. And Paul is giving him counsel and disciple-making methods of how he should now disciple others. So we, brothers and sisters, we're not discipled by, so we, brothers and sisters, we're not discipled by others or by the church simply so we can rest in our greater knowledge and maturity. It's so that we, in turn, will make more disciples. This is the call that God has given his whole entire church. Go and make disciples of all nations. That's not just for the leaders. It's not just for the deacons. It's not just for the pastors. It's go and make 
That, that covers all of us. So first of all, as we talk about discipleship, first of all, it works best in the context of relationship. Secondly, its purpose is to raise disciples who will make disciples. And thirdly, we see that discipling others requires sacrifice. There is a sacrifice involved with making disciples. In Timothy's case, it was a very real physically painful sacrifice. And he, because he was circumcised as an adult. <laughs> Why are you laughing uncomfortably, Paul? <laughs> kind of strikes close to home for, for some of us, doesn't it? Now, before we accuse Paul of hypocrisy, because remember, he, he's just come from this, the Jerusalem council where he has argued vehemently for the fact that circumcision should not be required of Gentile believers. But we have to understand that that was for a different purpose. Paul argues against circumcision as a requirement for salvation. For salvation. That's not what's going on here. In this case, Timothy's circumcision was going to open doors for Timothy to minister. In other words, Timothy would then be received well by both Gentiles, because his father was a Greek, but also by Jews, and by, when I'm saying Jews right now, I'm talking about Jews that were not believers in Jesus. So that as Paul and Timothy would travel to a new town, and they would go first to the synagogue, people that were receiving them there would come to know that Timothy himself was a circumcised Jew. That would give Timothy an opening. It means that what he had to say would be received. Whereas if he had not been circumcised... It would not have just before the Lord. It wouldn't have meant that he was not a believer or that he was not saved, but he would not have had the same access to preach and share the gospel within the Jewish community. So we never sacrifice the truth of the gospel. But we must be willing to sacrifice comfort, convenience, and even our personal preferences, if it is going to remove barriers to the gospel. So are we ready to pay that price in order to reach people with Jesus? Timothy was, was willing to do this so that he would be able to disciple others. He submitted himself to this painful sacrifice and we see, again, through Paul's epistles that this sacrifice bears fruit. And what kind of fruit does it bear? More people coming to Jesus. More Jews entering the kingdom of God because of Timothy's willingness to sacrifice for the, case, for the sake of discipleship. Now we come to this last little story. Our third D... And that is the need for discernment. Discernment. In verses 6 through 10 of chapter 16, we see, we read about two clear examples of the Holy Spirit directly impeding Paul and his companions from entering certain regions to minister. And what we see through this story, through this picture of words, is the need for discernment 
in missions. And not just in missions. <laughs> the need for discernment of God's will in life in general. So as we, ta- as we consider discerning the will of God in missions and beyond, again, some principles to consider. Four principles here about discernment. The first is one you've already heard before. It is God's mission. So when we talk about discerning God's will, that's what we need to remember. It is ultimately God's will. It's not mine. It's not even the will of the church. It is God's will. It is God's mission. And that's what we're seeking to discern, to understand. God is sovereign over it. Meaning, he has an opinion. God has an opinion about how this should be carried out. How do we know that? Because the Holy Spirit directly intervenes to guide Paul and his companions into the will of God. I I can't imagine any more direct description. The Holy Spirit impeded them. The The Spirit of Jesus kept them from going into particular places. How? We don't know why. And I am actually very, very grateful to Luke that he did not tell us how. How did the Holy Spirit impede them? Because I'm pretty certain that if we knew how, we would want to make that normative for every situation. And we would be tempted to say, okay, this is how the Holy Spirit always reveals the will of God. Luke doesn't give us that. He just said the Holy Spirit kept them from doing it. But what we need to understand and what I want us to recognize from the activity of the Holy Spirit is that the mission is the Lord's. It's not our mission, it's his. So the first step of discernment is actually a step of surrendering to God's sovereignty and mission. It is his mission, and I am surrendered to his will. Secondly, as we are discerning the will of God, start moving. Okay? So movement is the second aspect. Now, I want to unpack that a little bit. My dad, Pastor Bill, I remember, told me, I think when I was in junior high, there was something I was praying about, trying to say, what's God's will? And I remember Pastor Bill saying to me, you can't steer a parked car. And I I thought about that for a little bit. I was like, well, what do you mean? I mean, he said, well, you can get behind the steering wheel and you, you know, as I used to do as a little kid, you know, but the car's parked. So you can turn the wheel all you want, but you're not going to change your direction. So one principle that my dad taught me is he said, when you're trying to discern the will of God, assess the situation, consider your desires, seek the word of the Lord, and begin to decide and understand what the best direction is or what you think the best direction is and begin to take steps in that direction. And as you begin to move, God will begin to steer your way. He often does that by opening and closing doors, right? So I'm moving. I I believe this is a particular way that God wants me to move. So I start walking in that direction. I start making decisions in that direction. And as I do, as long as our hearts are truly open to him, he will begin to guide. He will open and close doors along the way. 
This is something that's happened with Julie and I recently as we were discerning God's will as to whether we were to leave Calvary and leave Brazil and move to the, to the U.S. We began to take steps in that direction because we had assessed the situation. We had sought counsel. We were seeking the word of the Lord. We were listening to his word. And so we believed that was the direction we, should, we started taking steps. And as I've told Julie and I've told several others, God kept opening these doors and I often felt like I was actually on the other side of the door, holding onto that doorknob with both hands and trying to keep it shut. And God kept opening them. So as we consider, as, as we are discerning God's will, there can be a danger of apathy where we, be, we just sit and do nothing. We don't make a decision. We don't start to take steps. But we pray, we search the scriptures, we seek counsel and wisdom of, of other believers that we trust, and we begin to move. Another illustration that I've used in this before has to do with those automatic doors that we usually see at supermarkets or malls or, or other kinds of public uh, um, commerce. If we are seated... Say we're sitting down, you know, 10, 20 meters away from that door. And we look up and we say, well, obviously that's not God's will. The door is closed. Well, it, it is closed. But when does that door open? When you get close to it. And so if, if we have weighed all the other options and we have prayed and we have sought the Lord and we have sought wisdom, and we begin to move in a particular direction, the... If that's the Lord's will, that door is going to open as we approach it. And we see with Paul and his companions that they are acting on this. They are moving. They're trying to go into these different, different regions. Um, so they, they, they travel through Phrygia and Galatia because they were kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching in Asia. And then it said, so then they came to the border of Mysia. They tried to go into Bithynia and the Spirit of Jesus kept them from doing that. So as they were moving, the Holy Spirit began opening and closing doors. And this brings us to the third point in discernment, and that is the sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Maybe a better word for that is surrender to the Holy Spirit. Because even as we're moving, we need to do so constantly attentive to the Holy Spirit, holding our plans loosely. The Holy Spirit is living and active. He indwells the church. He convicts of sin. He illuminates the word of God. And in this passage, we see his active role in leading the direction that the missionaries are to take. Again, we don't know how. But it was clear to Paul. And we must be sensitive and surrendered to the leading of the Holy Spirit without saying that this leading is always going to come in a specific way. And finally, the fourth and final point is immediate obedience. As soon as the way is made clear, what happens? After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. Two things here briefly. Um, notice that for the first time, the pronoun here has changed. Because up until this point, it was Paul and his companions in the third person. So they did this, they did that. All of a sudden, we have the pronoun in the first person, we. 
And so Luke has now joined Paul and Silas and his other companions. We don't know if they met here for the first time or if Luke had had previous encounters with Paul and somehow they joined up again. But regardless from now, for a good portion of the Holy Spirit blocks them. They go another way, the Holy Spirit blocks them. The Macedonian vision comes and a man saying, come help us, there's an open door. What do we want to do? We're not primarily concerned with where we're doing it, but it's the gospel and there's an opening for the gospel and it's immediate obedience to go where God has opened the door. And um, I, I know that for me and I think perhaps many of us, that we can use prayer sometimes as a delay. I'm not suggesting that we pray less, but I'm just saying that we can use prayer as a delay tactic. We have an idea of what we believe God wants us to do, and uh, we say, well, I, I, I'm going to pray about it more. So I'm not suggesting, hear me, brothers and sisters, I'm not suggesting we pray less, but I am suggesting that we are careful that we don't use prayer just as a stalling tactic because we don't want to obey. So once the direction is clear, immediate obedience is our responsibility. And so, sisters and brothers, disagreements, discipleship, discernment. Three realities of missions, but as I said earlier, they go beyond missions. They're realities that will face every child of God. Each disciple of Christ will have to deal with disagreements within the body of Christ. Each disciple of Christ should be discipled and should begin making disciples. And each disciple of Christ should be growing in discernment as we grow in our knowledge of scripture and deepen our relationship with God as his daughters and sons.